Hello and welcome to the very first Centrofish podcast. I'm editorial director Drew Cherry, and I'm here with executive editor John Fiorillo. Hi, John. Hello. This podcast gives us the opportunity to share and discuss the most compelling stories on Intrafish and give you some of the stories behind the stories. We'll bring in other voices from the Intrafish editorial team from time to time. We have three topics we're going to hit on today based on stories we produced this week that generated controversy and commentary. And John, we're going to start out with the Marine Stewardship Council. Uh, You wrote a column earlier this week on the MSC's move into FIP certification. So maybe talk to us about the genesis of the column. Yeah, in June, the uh, MSC board agreed to further develop a new program to uh, recognize fishery improvement projects, so-called FIPS. And they've created a a system to move these FIPS into full certification. And they they call this process in transition to MSC or ITM fisheries. So it got us thinking, well, why would they start going in that direction. And when we looked into it a little bit, we noticed a pretty important piece of data that their uh, new assessments over the last three years have really leveled off. So they're not drawing a lot of the larger, more developed fisheries into their assessment um, system. I argued in, in the piece that they're going further down the chain to these uh, FIPS. And the, the risk that we talked about was that when you enter into an in-transition fishery, you've got, I think, under their proposal, five years to go into the MSC process. Yeah. And during that period, you effectively, you get this green halo. And we had some feedback from readers. And over the years, readers have complained about this, that when you enter into the MSC process, you already get that glow of being associated with the MSC. So that kind of is one of the risks of, of the, this project. Well, it, it's certainly something that a lot of people are concerned about because, as you say, you get that halo, you get imprinted with this idea that you're, you're going to be certified. Now, a lot of these uh, FIPS are very small fisheries. They haven't been in the MSC loop for obvious reasons. They don't have the data. They don't have a lot of the things necessary to, to get certified. So you give them five years in which they can say they're in transition, you know, I I think that that raises some eyebrows with a lot of people. The MSC, they wrote a letter into us commenting uh, on what you'd written, and one of the things that stuck out that they said was that the MSC is not, they basically argue the MSC is not a commercial endeavor, so I wondered how you felt about that. Yeah, I I thought the letter was... uh, not not a very good response, first of all. They really didn't address any of the arguments in the piece. But, you know, they've always been, quote-unquote, market-driven um, uh, eco-label enterprise. And I don't think this is market-driven at all. I think this is somewhat survival-driven for them. I think it is, as they said in their own um, statement, you know, this is to get these into the pipeline. I mean, and it, and it does, there's been this argument over the years that MSC's trying to monopolize uh, sustainability. And yeah. in a way, they've come out and, and said, you're not really a FIP unless right from the get-go, you're saying you're going to go to MSC. And that plays into that argument that, yeah. they're, that they're trying to... They, they've create, they've crafted, crafted a statement that says what a credible FIP is. So... You know, the opposite of that, obviously, is if you're not 
following that path, you're not a credible FIP. And that's just not true. That That is, you know, I don't think anybody would agree with that. Are, are some FIPs more advanced than others? Yes, but, you know, we're talking about fisheries that have very limited resources, are generally very remote. These are not developed fisheries, so there's there's no way they're going to have all the necessary things to get certified under the MSC or any of the other programs. They, it, they have to be developed. All right, so before we move on to the next topic, John, any final thoughts on where MSC is going to go with this and what this is going to mean in larger scheme of things? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the takeaway for me is that this is the future of the MSC. I think it's going to have trouble getting any any large, more developed fisheries into its system in a significant way. Um, so it is going to focus on these smaller uh, uh, FIPS and, and fisheries like that. The, the, the troublesome part of that to me is that they require a lot of work, a lot of work, thus the five-year time window to even, you know, get into the pipeline for the MSC certification. So. Um, the MSC probably is a bit concerned about their future um, flow of customers, I would think. All right, then let's move on to Pacific Andes, uh, which is embroiled in a huge financial mess. They are currently going through New York uh, bankruptcy proceedings, uh, which began earlier this year. Um, and, John, uh, let's go back to a column you wrote, I, I think it was about a month ago, where you talked about a visit uh, in, I believe it was the early 2000s, to Pacific Andes' new whitefish processing plant. And it's kind of symbolic of both their rise and fall. Yeah, it was uh, a decade ago in 2006. I was, I was one of the first journalists to see this plant being built. It's in Shingdao, and it was massive. And the scale I had never seen before. It was an entire little city built around this plant. There were living quarters. It was a hospital, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was $80 million at the time, and uh, it just was a, a symbol of where this company was headed and their ambition. So since that time, they've built up a, an incredible empire uh, there in, in China and have really come to be known as the whitefish processor and I think that's a question that I have is who's next who's going to be the new Chinese processor that's on everybody's lips that everybody knows and recognizes um, and I think that question is yet to be answered still yeah I think so too and I think you know just on on a side note um, this this shows the vulnerability of investment in seafood um, it, you know, the uh, harvesting fish from the sea is not an exact science. And no, no matter how big your company is, no matter how big your fleet is, you can be brought to your knees after a few really poor seasons. And if you compound that with, you know, maybe questionable uh, financial management on top, it's, it's a risky game. Yeah, and I mean, to go back to when this all began, this all started really... Uh, from a lack of transparency with right. their what was going on in Russia, and then they, when they were uh, forced out of Russia, they had to quickly scramble to find another asset for China fishery, and they of course moved down to uh, to Peru where they already had operations, 
And then they got into uh, their pissing match with Cermak to get those assets. Ultimately, Cermak was spun off from the Norwegian government uh, into Avos and the salmon farming uh, operation. But China Fishery ended up paying $800 million for that asset, which is far more than they could afford. Sure. And as and you just mentioned, the Peruvian anchovy fishery nature caught up collapsed, yep. and look where they look where they ended up. And it's had this domino effect on the pick and pack, and uh, and really onto the whole uh, onto the whole whitefish processing sector. So now uh, they're kind of in this uh, in this wilderness of of bankruptcy proceedings, and on one side they have all their lenders looking for them to. Uh, liquidate and get get money back as quick as possible. And there's an increasing set of lenders who are saying, "Well, you know, let's let the sales process take its time and go through the natural outcome here." Um, but earlier this week, they listed some of the potential buyers for the uh, for the operation, and it was it read like a, a who's who. Um, there were six companies that signed the non-disclosure agreement. Uh, Fosun partnered with Shangdong Shengli Bioengineering, a Chinese company. Uh, Peruvian group Brescia, which owns uh, Tassa, uh, that's a Peruvian uh, anchovy harvester and processor. And uh, Chinese tilapia giant Gualian Aquatic. Uh, also, a Dutch giant Parlevliet and Vanderplas, uh, and uh, Icelandic group Samergy and private equity group Blackstone were interested and put a deposit down. But none of those came. Through, uh, and I don't know how how lucky they're going to be finding a buyer for these. Well, why assets. would you pay? Why would you pay much right now? I, I mean, I wouldn't pay anything right now until I see where things are going because their their major banks want them to liquidate, and if that should come to pass, things are going to be a lot cheaper than they would be if you tried to buy it now. Yeah. So, I can't see anybody rushing in, but, you know, you never know. Well, Jessie Ng, in her deposition, her most recent deposition, said that the challenge is that uh, one of the vessels they're trying to offload has been put onto uh, an IUU list. And so who wants to go in and purchase an IUU vessel whose name is effectively smeared? Uh, You're going to be inheriting all kinds of problems. So... I think they're going to have. Uh, I think they're going to continue to have a, you know, a challenge. Um, she did say the process was ongoing with some Chinese companies. So who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe these assets will, will get uh, picked up. Um, there was kind of a heartbreaking email <laughs> that was written by Pacific Annies to the uh, this, uh, Saudi Development Group, um, kind of to a general inbox, asking if they'd be interested in in purchasing the the company. And I think that speaks to the the desperate state that that the company is is getting into. Yeah, so. and I think it it goes full circle to what we started this conversation with. It you built an empire, maybe there's a good dose of arrogance in there as you grew, and you know your lack of transparency and all those things. Now you know it doesn't look so good. So you have to be careful along the way you, you know as you build these these giant seafood companies well let's see where it goes because it's uh, the whole thing's being done in the in the uh, courts and yeah. that means uh, intrafish will have those public documents at our disposal so we'll uh, we'll keep everybody updated on that well this week drew you uh, you penned a column about uh, maybe did. considering 
fish farming in Alaska, even though the state has banned it and generally has wanted no part of it. What what were you thinking in <laughs> suggesting this? What was I thinking? Well, uh, you know, it, it's as as you well know, I'm from Alaska and, and from uh, Bristol Bay and a fishing family, so there's an intense amount of, of uh, risk that I'm I'm taking by penning this, but um, at least to my my inbox, um, and and I think that w- what struck me is um, is not the actual ban. If it's not right for the state, that's absolutely fine. But let's have a reasoned, a critical look at whether or not this is right for the state. Because when it was put in place in 1990. Uh, and this was pretty shocking to me when I started doing some of the research on it. Um, it was really made off the cuff. This was at a time when economics was really the driver for it, not environmentalism. Um, and so, you know, ironically, the quid pro quo for putting this in place was a $40 million coal mine. Mm. So that kind of speaks to uh, maybe some of the hypocrisy that this was. A, a noble environmental um, precautionary principle ban that was put in place. Yeah, but I mean, all around the world, um, whether Chile or Norway or neighboring Canada, you know, the salmon farms have had their share of sure. challenges, disease, sure. lice, um, you know, and why, why do you think any Alaskan would would want to bring that in with the potential for what it what it could mean. Yeah, I mean, I think any kind of any kind of uh, of harvesting processing, whether it's fisheries or aquaculture, is going to come with a, a certain amount of risk, and it's whether or not that risk is tolerable. And I think with salmon farming, uh, yes, there's there's lice, there's uh, potential for disease transfer, there's all those things that. Uh, that we do need to be vigilant about. But the amount of information and the amount of knowledge and awareness that we have from 1990 until now, uh, 26 years later, it, it at least, I think, warrants uh, a further exploration of it. And then, you know, the elephant is in the room. Alaska is already the largest salmon farmer in the United States, yeah. and that's a that's a dirty term, and it has been for a long time, but it, it shouldn't be, and I think that's changing. Um, but I think that anti-salmon farming lobbyists have been very effective in sort of creating kind of a media cloud where people have been unable, people on the ground have been able to kind of cut through and see just the practicality of it. And again, if it doesn't work and it's not right, that's fine. But let's start from a point of getting the patient on the table and saying, okay, what exactly is wrong here and can we mitigate those risks and is it worth it? And what is the potential benefits to coastal communities? Because that's kind of where I started started it off with was this concern about where where is employment going to come? Yeah, and that was a very interesting point of the piece. I thought was the employment in these largely remote areas, and um, you you were arguing that you know salmon farming could give year-round jobs in some of these places where it's obviously very seasonal. You know, a few months in the summer. What um how how do you see that happening? Do you see farms actually? in the vein of um, net pens or are you 
thinking along the lines of maybe uh, land-based operations? Well, I mean, I think land-based would be the easiest to get through politically. Uh, but I think a lot of people say this from, you know, I've had people from the state, from the federal government, uh, people in the wild salmon sector, people in the in the retail sector, a lot of them who I heard from today, um, who have who have said that you know the conditions are right, and that Alaska embracing this could make it a salmon powerhouse, and maybe they missed the boat a little bit. But I don't think uh, I don't think that um, that the opportunity is is lost forever. So the conditions are right there if they want to pursue that. Land-based salmon farming, we know the economics isn't quite there yet, but politically, absolutely, we know that there's a, a lot of support in the NGO community for land-based salmon farming. We know that there is uh, there there are some examples of it uh, working successfully in BC mm -hmm. uh, to a certain extent. So, you know, I could see I could see things beginning with land-based salmon farming, but. To, to make it work and to make this actually profitable and to really bring the economic benefits, you're going to need the scale, and that yeah. means net pens. Well, and you mentioned, uh, you know, this year a uh, portion of the runs were way off, and that's just part and parcel of the wild salmon fishery. It's, it's somewhat unpredictable, although, you know, the management does a pretty good job year to year. Um, but what would this, lastly, this is really my last question, what, what would this mean, should it come to pass that we had farms develop in Alaska? What would that mean, do you think, to the Alaska salmon brand? Well, I think that's a good question. And, and I, I guess first off, I would, I would say uh, that, that I see it as, as two different uh, separate issues. When I look at the state of Alaska, I really see the southeast and I see Bristol Bay. And I think Bristol Bay has uh, has a a unique position uh, ecologically and economically, um, and and then just from a, a standpoint of, of practicality, it's just the the conditions are not the way that they are in the southeast to actually raise salmon there. So that's one thing I think that is is a an entire kind of separate sector in a way. Um, I think the idea of Alaskan grown salmon. Uh, can capture the imagination just as much as wild Alaska salmon can, you know. And I, I think it's a matter of uh, again, at least having this thought experiment of of uh, of whether or not um, salmon farming is is economically uh, feasible for the the state, and really putting it to the residents themselves. This was a decision made on emotion. This was a decision that was not made by actual people in actual communities with any real ammunition about what salmon farming is all about. Um, and you've got great examples of it down in Washington State. Their uh, Icicle Now Cook is farming here in Washington State and they've partnered with communities and, uh, and native groups as well. And, and it's working. They're making it work. What they're not doing and where I think Alaska has an opportunity uh, and Washington is is touting that it is a domestically produced product and I think they could really make a lot of hay out of that because um, everybody knows I mean domestically um, that resonates that that does work uh, that does work well with with US consumers uh, well it's an interesting issue and I'm sure one that uh, won't go away anytime soon um, but yeah great thanks all right. 
Well, that's our time for this episode. We uh, touched on some really good hot button issues, and uh, and we'll look forward to doing it again in the near future. Uh, thanks to Interfish reporter Kim Tran for production help. Remember, you can find around-the-clock exclusive breaking seafood news on interfish.com, and you can reach out to us anytime. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or you can drop us a line at editorial at interfish.com. Thanks.